Let's turn now to the Gospel of Luke again, and we're reading from the 22nd chapter. We'll begin at verse 24, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, and then read down through verse 53. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. Then he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer, and had come to the disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out against as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple... You did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Connection with our reading from Scripture, we turn in our book of forms and prayers to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 49. 
What does the third petition mean? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to renounce our own wills and without any back talk to obey your will for it alone is good. Help everyone carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, this this request really involves some uh, profound assumptions, assumptions that are really out of mind and we might say out of reach of those who who claim some kind of general belief in a God or who may even consider themselves spiritual, but that's as far as it goes. And those assumptions, there are three assumptions. Uh, the first being that uh, the God to whom we pray is, in fact, the living and the true God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a personal God. He's not some force. He's not some uh, general power that is operating through some mystical cosmic energy in the universe. He is a personal God. He has a will. And in connection with that, secondly, God and his will is knowable. Uh, we can know what he wants. We can know what is right and wrong, uh, good and bad. We can know what pleases him and what uh, provokes his displeasure. For these things are, are clearly revealed. They're revealed, uh, first of all, especially in his word. Uh, but they are also actually reflected in the consciences of those who, who knowing the righteous judgment of God still practice such things that they in their heart of hearts know deserve death. That's Romans 1. That speaks of the reality of this inescapable testimony of God that reaches all people. And they can't escape that sense of right and wrong. They have an act of conscience that excuses or condemns them. So that's the second thing. But thirdly, God's will must be the rule of our lives. God's will is the supreme authority that is to govern our choices, our actions. In fact, every every movement even of our inner lives, every inclination of our of our desires and of our wills is to be ruled by God's will. Your will be done. In a way, when you think about that, where that is a, a sincere, a genuine, heartfelt request, that's one of the most profound expressions that the human soul is capable of. It's really the epitome. It's like the apex of our Lord Jesus Christ's absolute commitment to the will of God. It defined his he uses such words, your will be done. He uses such words in his obedience unto death. Even when every instinct of his sinless and holy soul, soul recoiled at the awful cost of what it meant to say, not my will, but yours be done. And we are called to walk 
in our life and in our circumstances, and by His grace, we are to walk in His steps. Pray for the doing of God's will. That's our theme from the Catechism's exposition of this uh, petition as it summarizes the teaching of God's Word. And we want to begin with the fact that this is a, an unselfish prayer. Uh, we're to pray this petition with an unselfish outlook. We only need to consider the language of the prayer itself and also the way the Catechism defines it. Uh, from the very outset, uh, the Lord's Prayer in the, is in the language of our, our Father in heaven. We pray for, uh, for ourselves as God's people. We, us, is the, the characteristic plural language of this prayer. And when we pray with others, that's the language that we use. Our, we, us. But even when we pray privately, even when we use the uh, personal pronouns like I pray, I give thanks to you, I request, help me. We're taught in this Lord's Prayer that uh, even in our private and personal prayers, we are not to forget to look beyond ourselves and our needs and our desires. And that's evident also in the language of the Catechism that defines this prayer in this way. Help us. Help us and all people to renounce our own wills. And again, help everyone to carry out his calling. There is this unselfish outlook expressed in this prayer. And this really shows, uh, again, the God-centered nature of this petition. You know, we often hear the expression today, I respect everyone's choices. And sometimes even such language is kind of a preface to an objection. I respect everyone's choices, but I have to follow my own personal faith on this or that matter. Some of you may have heard this kind of language uh, recently by uh, hockey players or football players who were uh, being forced or coerced or pressured to wear the rainbow colors. And uh, some of them objected. And the, 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 the characteristic language that I heard in voicing their objections often began with an affirmation of their respect for other people's choices while they gave testimony to their faith. And yes, I realize that that took a lot of courage in that situation to say that much. And it's commendable insofar as it goes. But I think it deserves some scrutiny and some evaluation. Do we respect everyone's choices regardless of what those choices may be? Now, it's certainly the case that we should always respect people. And we should show that respect in our language and the way we treat them. We should respect people even when they make harmful choices. Even when they make sinful choices. We are not to treat them with contempt. We're not to treat them with a superior attitude. But there's a difference between respecting people who make bad choices and respecting everyone's choices. Do we respect the choice of someone to take a gun and shoot up a school? No. That's an evil choice. Do we respect the choice of people to use vulgarity and profanity? Well, we might respect their political legal right to do so. That's called tolerance in a country that allows such freedom of speech. In that sense, we respect people's political right to 
pursue idolatry and worship false gods. But does that mean that we have a respect for choices, regardless of what they may be? Do we respect choices to live immoral lives? Do we respect the choice to pursue criminal activity? Well, of course, so we make judgments about such things. Imagine if one of these players would have said something like this. Homosexuality is contrary to God's will. And it's wrong to uh, pressure people to celebrate it. And it's wrong to celebrate it. Boom! You can imagine what kind of reaction that would. That is just a categorical judgment with respect to what God's will is. And that's the basis and the foundation for our personal submission to his will. It's not simply a matter of subjective choice as a political right. Again, it's good as far as it goes, but we recognize the contrast between biblical testimony in terms of a focus upon God's will and a focus upon choice. Biblical morality is not just a private concern, brothers and sisters. No, that's radical in our day and age. It's likely to provoke the response, what's it to you how people live, especially in their private lives? While Christians are concerned for public morality, you are concerned for the lifestyle of your fellow workers. You ought to be. That's part of being God-centered. Does God care about people's choices? Does God make moral judgments about people's choices? He most certainly does. And we are to be like God in this way. Sin dishonors God. And we should care about that. We should care when others dishonor God. And of course, this is especially true of God's people. The church, help us, it begins. And all people, help us as Christians. Help us to honor you. Help us to live in such a way as to provide a testimony to this world that we follow your will, your good will. We have this broad concern. You know, the witness of the Christian church is not simply let us practice our faith uh, without disturbance. Please allow us to carry on our own uh, religious views without oppression. Well, yes, that's part of it. And that can be part of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the legal testimony that Christians bear before uh, civil authorities. But that's not the Christian witness. The Christian testimony is kiss the son lest he be angry. The Christian testimony, the witness of the church of Jesus Christ is God commands all men everywhere to repent. Because we believe those assumptions that are underlying this prayer. That there is a living and true God. He is knowable and He has made Himself known. And we are to follow His will. And that's foundational to, foundational to the Christian's witness to Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And you see, brothers and sisters, this shows true love for our neighbor. Sin brings misery and unhappiness. And we should care about others bringing upon themselves misery and unhappiness. That's called love. It's called love. Sometimes it's a love that's willing to offend people by a faithful testimony as to the will of God. You know, often we hear the expression, our thoughts and prayers are with you, right? I mean, this is the kind of language that, that public officials use. This is the kind of language that, uh, 
news uh, anchors use, our thoughts and prayers. Are, and usually it refers to people that are suffering some loss, some calamity, some tragedy. They're, they're in trouble. And again, that's a kind thing to say. I'm not judging or criticizing that, but it's, I'm just observing that that kind of language is used with respect to the troubles that people face. Is such language ever used with respect to the will of God? Is such language ever used with respect to the rampant immorality of the day in which we live? Is such language used with respect to the accelerating violence that characterizes so much of society? Is it used with respect to government corruption? Our thoughts and prayers are that God would convince men of his goodwill. Our thoughts and prayers are that God's commandments might be honored in society and that the misery and the trouble that results from rejecting his word might be mitigated as God's will is followed. This is not a, a selfish prayer. It's a prayer that we and all people would renounce our own wills and obey God's will. And secondly, we pray for everyone's faithfulness in their calling. Help everyone carry, carry out his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. <clears throat> it may be that angels have a pretty uh, highly structured organizational kind of uh, arrangement in which they they uh, operate in ranks with special assignments and tasks that they carry out. That may well be. The Catechism cites uh, Psalm 103 in this connection, where it says, Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers or you servants of his who do his pleasure. Yes, the angels are God's servants, a host of angels that carry out God's will. And the Bible says much about uh, their their work in God's world and ministering also to the saints and giving they're given charge for the protection of the saints. But the thing that our catechism highlights in connection with this second petition is that they obey willingly and faithfully. And that's the model for our obedience. And that's true of us, whether we're male or female or old or young. Uh, it's true of us, whatever our vocation may be, whatever our current life circumstances are. In all these things, we, we are to serve the Lord Christ with a servant's heart, even as our Lord Jesus Christ served in obedience to his Father's will. And we all have specific positions, along with this general calling that we share in common. We all have specific positions, sometimes numerous relationships that we occupy and tasks that we're given relative to our, our calling or office. And again, the catechism uses that word here, office, not, not only to refer to what we designate as official office, whether office in the church or office in the state, it's rather a term that reflects this idea that God appoints us our vocation, our calling, whatever that might be. We're to serve as prophets, priests, and kings, as mothers, as sons and daughters, whatever our, our situation may be. And these specific positions also give shape uh, to that service that we're called to. We are to pray to do God's will 
according to our assignments, you might say, according to our callings. And this gives focus uh, to our prayers to do God's will. And we should ask, what is the task that uh, God has given me? What is my what is my inspired job description? Now we might have a job description and our you know day to day work, but we all have an inspired job description, not only in terms of our general vocation as Christians, but there are passages that address us. There are passages that address you as young men. And you ought to give special attention to what the Bible says to young men as to that which is to characterize their life and service. Passages that address old men. Passages that address older women. Passages that address wives and husbands and children and parents and office bearers and public officials. And we ought to give special interest to our job descriptions as inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that they might give us direction and that they might teach us how to pray for ourselves and how to pray for others. How husbands should pray for their wives and how wives should pray for their husbands, understanding their responsibilities before God, trying to understand the challenges and difficulties that your wives face from day to day as they seek to carry out their tasks in raising children and disciplining them and caring for them. And husbands and their responsibility to give Christ-like leadership in the home. And we could go on and on. The point being that God reveals his will, not simply in general that we share, but he reveals his will specifically in terms of our calling and position. And that requires our special attention. How do I pray for others? Do I know anything about God's will for them? How can I pray? Well, yes, you know God's will for them if you know what God says about them in terms of their position and calling. And we pray together for one another in connection with those specific callings. And we do so as God's word directs us. How do you pray for civil authorities? Well, you go to their job description according to scripture. And you pray that they would be faithful in their calling to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do well and to promote um, peace and order so that we might live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness. Just as one example. In that connection, we must uh, observe that there is a kind of uniqueness to doing God's will as his image bearers. In other words, there there are characteristics and features of human obedience that uh, really... uh, don't apply to angels. Angels cannot obey God in the uniquely human relationships of marriage, for example, because angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Angels can't obey God with respect to the challenges and the unique responsibilities of childbearing or child raising. Angels don't change diapers. Angels don't do laundry. Angels don't give baths. Angels don't prepare meals. Angels cannot obey against the tide of their own corruptions. Angels cannot obey in resistance to the flesh that wars against the soul. You know, our our obedience in this life will never be perfect as that of angels in terms of their performance and the quality of their obedience without fail and without fault. 
But you know that there's a sense in which there's a kind of, a kind of heroic, valiant character to the Christian obedience who's waging war against this enemy within, who is seeking to obey God in the face of all these forces that are against us, that angels do not experience. They do not experience the weakness of the flesh. Not simply the sinful nature, but the way our bodily weakness and the sicknesses and the sufferings that characterize this life present to us these obstacles and these hindrances to saying, your will be done. And we seek to obey against the face and against the tide of such resistance. We can glorify God. And God has chosen to glorify himself in the lives of his saints as they seek to serve and obey him in weakness, fighting against sin, persevering in this spiritual battle with all its troubles and failings that should stir us with a sense of our calling, that we should be valiant in this fight, that we should pray for God's help, that his name would be glorified, and that we would advance in this spiritual warfare that we're in. And in that connection, we pray for humble submission. We pray that we would renounce our own wills and without any back talk, obey your will, for it alone is good. And we observe here that there is a certain kind of persuasion that is absolutely necessary uh, to pray this prayer sincerely with a desire to do it. And that's in that phrase, it alone is good. God's will is good, always good, beautifully good. Oh, how I love your law. I love your testimonies. They're the joy and rejoicing of my heart. They're sweet, sweeter than the honeycomb. All such expressions show a deep, settled conviction that God's word, God's will is good. And the result of that, the result of that conviction, well, for one thing, it it certainly can minister to our contentment, to our contentment with respect to our specific calling and place in life. Because we realize that God in his providence has appointed our office and our task. And his will for us is good. If we are single until the Lord, if the Lord should choose to provide us with a partner, we, we confess that God's will is good. And we'll strive and we'll pray for contentment, whatever our situation may be. We will gladly accept the task that God will give us. Serve the Lord with gladness. Well, how can you do that? Because you're convinced that serving the Lord is not only right, but it's good. It's the way of blessing. It's the way of true happiness. It glorifies God. And that's how we can truly want the grace to do his will and pray earnestly for it. Now, our desires may indeed go go contrary to that, but we know that God's will is best, and so we fight against this tendency to back talk, right? Without talking back without doing what our children are inclined to do, perhaps in more overt ways, and argue with us and complain about it and say it's her job to do that. And we might have more sophisticated ways of doing that, arguing, carrying on this debate with God in our minds, trying to shift responsibility, complaining, 
No, being convinced that God's will is good provides us with a foundation to resist such thoughts and to recognize that our desires are deceitful desires if we would prefer them above above God's will. Rather, we must trust in him. We will trust in him. We want to do God's will. We want to do God's will even if it means suffering. In Hebrews chapter 11, it, uh, it describes Moses' Moses' outlook that enabled him uh, to revolt against Pharaoh's will and domination of God's people. And uh, he refused, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That's faith and exercise. Preferable to suffer. Suffer reproach with the people of God. The reproach of Christ is greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He chose a path of suffering, recognizing that it is good. In 1 Peter 4, it says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And this too, brothers and sisters, is a kind of obedience that glorifies God in a way that angels cannot do. Angels are never called to suffer. And though our obedience is never perfect, far from it in its quality, it is really after the pattern of the greatest model. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. To this you were called. And he's talking about suffering for doing good. When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this, to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Christ suffered for us. And he suffered in the pathway of obedience, an obedience unto death, the death of the cross, never deviating from that path, even when it meant drinking of that bitter cup, that cup of judgment, enduring the cross, bearing the curse for our sins. Yes, his sinless, perfect human nature recoiled. He wouldn't be holy if he didn't recoil at the awful thought of suffering God's judgment. And yet he persevered. Not my will, but yours be done. Shortly after this conflict, we're told in, in uh, John's Gospel, in the 18th chapter, when Judas and that company actually came to arrest Jesus, and Simon Peter, now we know who it was that drew the sword. We're not told in Luke, but we're told in John. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Here's an instance of, of uh, this disciple getting out of his lane, right? Moving out of his calling and office. It's not his job to execute justice on this occasion and take the law into his own hands. And Jesus responded, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? You see how he moved from this plea, this submissive plea, with this resolve. Yes, he would drink that cup. He would face that suffering 
Jesus submitted to God's will to be a curse for us. Now, we're never faced with such an impossible task to do that. The Lord Jesus has delivered us from that. Rather, our first our first calling is to give attention to the clearly revealed will of God for us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ did not come to do his own will, but to the will of the Father. And Christ also makes clear what is the most crucial first work, you might say, for sinners. What are the works of God that we might do them? The disciples said in John chapter 6, and Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's believing in this Savior, what he has done, who he is. That's really the first concern for those who are sinners, who have broken his commandments and have no way out. No way to escape the consequences and no way to do better unless they give first attention to that clearly revealed command of the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive the forgiveness of their sins and to receive that power by which God then works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure more and more until this struggle is over and we're glorified to sin no more. And we enter into that new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, where no one revolts against God's will in the least iota. And we pray that God's will would be done in view of that ultimate climax of his kingdom and the revelation of his glory forever. Amen.